Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, I am here with Kevtris, Kevin Horton. How's it going, man? Hey. It's uh, very good to have you back on again. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you about a lot of the stuff because uh, the, the Super Nintendo, man, that's my favorite system. <laughs> so, well, it's uh, kind of my favorite system now after working on this. <laughs> so uh, the last time I talked to you was right after the Analog NT Mini was released. Um, and we talked a lot about the different cores and all the other stuff that you'd put into that, as well as some of the testing that I'd done because... Um, I'm a little, I don't know if there's even a nice way to put it. I'm, I'm very anal about my, vi- my video games. I don't like things yeah. to be different than the way that they were originally done. And I couldn't find a single thing that was different when playing against like an RGB modded NES or something like that. So, uh, I don't know. This is, uh, this is exciting stuff here. Um, so I guess, uh, right after that, I'm assuming you probably went right into development with the Super Nintendo. Is that about yeah, right? That's about right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, geez, it's a little less than a year, I guess, right? Yeah, for just this part of it, yeah. So, you know, it's been, everything's been in progress since the mini days, but the bulk of the work was done, you know, pretty much this year. So uh, how how do you even go about doing something like this? Like, what is your first step? You know, obviously, other than grab a Super Nintendo and plug it in. <laughs> yeah, well, this time I did stuff a lot different than the way I usually do it. I actually created extra hardware for this, and the hardware was taking the Super Nintendo chips off a board and putting them on a new board and then plugging them into an FPGA. Then I could do direct compares between the real hardware and my FPGA hardware. And I could run it, it, you know, thousands or millions and billions of cycles and see if it was exactly the same. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, I was always wondering how uh, how cycling and longevity tests work in different environments because uh, I have a development background too, nowhere near like yours, more of just like a you know hands on type of thing. But um, uh, you know, a lot of the the longevity testing we did was like uh, subjecting things to extreme circumstances like high temperatures, but we had no way of really testing you know what it's going to be like after. Because, you know, with computer hardware for us, you can't really test after 10 years of cycling on and off and stuff. Yeah. So is that, that's part of the process, I'm assuming, too, is when you run it through these things, you know, um, like the old, for all of us old guys, the Pentium chips where they would fail after like the, you know, 100,000th decimal place in a, in a mathematical uh-huh. equation. Is that pretty much the same type of thing? Do you put these chips on and run them through all of the tests to kind of run through those? Well, like for the CPU, I started with the CPU, of course, because that's like the first, I don't know, that's the first natural place I thought to start because, you know, the CPU runs everything. So if the CPU doesn't work, nothing works. So I took an actual 65816 out of an Apple II GS, put it on a cartridge board, plugged it into the NT Mini, 
and use the NT Mini to develop it. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So what I did is I hooked up the 65816. I implemented my own using the data sheet and traces from the real chip using the FPGA as a logic analyzer. And then what I did is I got them in lockstep. So my CPU and the 65816 were running in parallel, running the same code. And then I could compare the outputs directly as it ran in real time. Huh. Jeez. So, um, how long did just the CPU take? About a month. That was a long time for a CPU. You know, my first 6502, I think, took two or three months. But after that, it gets faster and faster and faster. So a typical CPU may only take, you know, a couple days to a week. But this took at least a month or a month and a half. It took a long time. Jeez, that's crazy. Yeah. And, and then, so... Mm -hmm. Go ahead, sorry. And then... So what I did is I wrote some code, you know, to do initial testing, make sure the instructions, you know, mostly worked. And then I started doing interrupts. And then what I did is I wrote a thing in Verilog that would feed it random instructions, random data, and random interrupts all at the same time. So, you know, if my thing in the 65.816 stayed in perfect sync over time, that means they were exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Jeez. So um, after you finished the CPU, one of the things I've been wondering since day one, um, and I, I just I didn't <laughs> like I didn't want to bug you at all. But so all these questions are still running to my mind. Um, how did you decide where to start between the two chip and the one chip consoles? Um, how did you approach the whole video chip of, uh, part of this because of such the wide differences between the different models? Um, I just used the original two chip um, model. Mm hmm. So I bought four of them off of eBay. I bought uh, Super Famicom. They're $9 each, so they're pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. And when I got them, the plastic was all broken because the guy just put a single piece of bubble wrap and threaded it between the four systems and threw it in a box. But mm -hmm. I, I didn't care. They All four of them did work. So, you know, I knew I was starting with the working. You know, they're all yellowed and stuff. So they're they're not very good quality systems, but they worked great for this. You know, they're not something you put on the shelf. And they were very cheap. I was going to buy, you know, U.S. systems. They're like 60 bucks at least for a working SNES. Yeah, and if you wanted the one-chip models, they go even higher. And I've seen stores selling the Mini for uh, over $100 now, totally stock, just the yeah. know, Mini with controllers, which is outrageous. So, yeah, it's a lot more expensive here. Yeah, the one-chip, I have one, but um, I wasn't going to use it because on the PPU... I want all those signals because I watched all of those signals so I could see what it was doing inside. Mm -hmm. And I used that the same method with the comparing to make sure I had it. And what I was doing, I was actually running games on the real PPU and my FPGA PPU at the same time. And you could, could do a direct compare between the two. Oh, wow. I'm assuming you built all your custom hardware to make that happen as well, right? Yes. Uh-huh. That's crazy. So, um, or were you able to get rid of some of the weird blurring and filtering that uh, Nintendo, you know, somehow included in the two-chip design? Well, it's all digital, so there's none of that. What I wanted to hear, my friend. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I did some investigation. It looks like the, um, there was three revs of the PPU2, which is what outputs video. I suspect it's because the video output was pretty bad, so I think they kept trying to improve it over time. And, you know, it's still not the best. 
I th I have my theories why I'm not 100% sure. I have to get a decap done. I was kind of trying to get a decap done. I couldn't get it done. There's some issues with that. How would one even go about getting something decapped? Oh, I know some people that do it. Oh, well, that helps. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it wouldn't have really helped me a huge amount. You know, people think a decap is magic. It isn't. Um, you know, if I decapped it, you get this chip and it's giant, you know, there's, you know, thousands and thousands of gates on there and, you know, probably, you know, tens of thousands of transistors. And, you know, I don't have time to do all of that. You know, it's easier to do a black box reverse engineer, which is what I did. Hmm. So, uh, was it the same approach with the audio? Because, uh, there was at least three different audio revisions, right? Um, well, I did the audio a while back, so I used that, but there was a lot of bugs I found, so I fixed all of the bugs. So, I mean, there's, like, some really hard games that stream audio to it as it plays uh, Earthworm Jim 2, Clay Fighter, and Tales of Fantasia all stream audio directly to the, um, to the APU SPC as it plays, and it's very, very timing sensitive. Hmm. So is that something like the Super Game Boy that generates its own audio through the analog pins, or is that different? No, no, it's all digital. No, it uses, like, Earthworm Jim uses HDMAs to send data in real time. It sends it in, like, chunks, and it plays one chunk, and it's buffering the next. Hmm. So it has, like, three chunks. So it's playing one, buffering two, and there's enough HDMA time during the screen to transfer the next block before it plays it. That's actually a pretty ingenious way of doing it to make sure. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So most of them, all three of those games work that way, but it's a different driver. So, you know, you get one working and the other ones may not work yet. So there was some playing around with that, but I did get all of those working. So I've tested every, you know, every game pretty much. I've played most of them, at least a little bit. Everything works. So, of course, um, the first questions on a lot of people's mind were, does this work with FX games? Of course, yes, it does. Awesome. Um, was it hard to try to, to try to make that happen, or was it just... Uh, <laughs> was that doom with the red cartridge? Yeah, felt red. Yeah. So, yeah, Yoshi's Island was the first uh, Super FX game I got it playing. Hmm. Best Super FX game, I think. Yeah, it's but a great game. I, I am a fan of the original Star Fox too. I don't know why. It just always maybe maybe I was just so fascinated with the polygons as a kid that I love it. But I still think it's a pretty decent game. Yeah, I never had it back in the day. I actually didn't have any Super Effects game back in the day. <laughs> so you know, I got Yoshi's Island a while back. So I'm you know I've played that quite a bit. So um, I believe it said uh, on the listing that uh, the Super Game Boy was uh, confirmed working as well, correct? Yep, even the Super Game Boy 2. Uh, I was going to be my, my next question. So the clock speed of the Super Game Boy won't interfere with the FPGA SNES at all then? Just oh, no, no. It, it, the, the cartridge port on the uh, Super NT is exactly the same as on a regular Super Nintendo. All the signals are there and everything. That's awesome. And um, I believe you said you tested with the SD to SNES, right? Oh, yeah, I developed with it. Oh, that's awesome. So that definitely guarantees that, that works. Yeah. yeah, I developed with this. This thing was pretty awesome for development. And, yes, it does work with the Super EverDrive. Cool. Yeah. cool. <laughs> 
Uh, what Actually, about... I had a lot of problems with the Super EverDrive, and it was the it's this cartridge. I don't know if there's something wrong with it, but it did the exact same thing on my reel at Super Nintendo too. So I know it's not anything I was doing, but mm -hmm. the SD card would just not work on it for a while. I used it about ten times, and then the SD card just quit working. It would say SD card error. You know, it boot up, show them show the directory. And when you go to load a game, it would erase it. And then when it was going to load it, it would just die, for lack of a better term. But then after a week or two, then it just worked fine, and it still works. So I, I don't know. I but have had that issue with EverDrive, but all I do is take it out, take the SD card out, put everything back in, and it, it seems to fix it. And it doesn't yeah. die even mid-game. It just, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's always like loading or whatever. So in any event, yes, it does work. This is the version with the with the DSP. Oh, cool. Uh, so, I, yeah, I bought these um, from that Stone Age Gamer just to make sure it worked. I was going to get a super um, power pack, but I couldn't find one on eBay. So, mm. I'm sure it works. So, so, I did you have a chance to test the MSU1 audio games as well? Uh, no, but I'm sure it'll work. I mean, audio works, you know, like on the Super Game Boy. So, I was mm. going to test it. I just haven't done it yet. I don't know where to find those games. I got poke around haven't had time to do it oh you should have just uh should have just instant messaged me i just sent one over to you <laughs> so, but yeah i'm sure it, i'm sure it works so but i mean i have like all i made sure that super game boy works i mean i have all three of them right here yeah and that's you know that's basically the same thing because it, it pumps the audio down the same pin yeah so i got the japanese one the u.s one and of course and i got the, the two i mean it's all the same thing so so I have um, a, the digital audio mod installed into my Super Nintendos, um, and I, I definitely hear a difference because there's no analog hum on the line at all, so it definitely uh -huh. sounds better, at least to my ears. Um, on, on this, on the Super NT, um, I'm assuming that would mean that all of the audio that was in the FPGA is generated digitally, and the only analog to digital audio would be whatever's through those pins. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. All right, so basically you'll still get that same really high-quality audio as if you had the digital mod. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I got an option to adjust the volume on the on the cartridge audio so you can mute it if you want or, you know, change the level. You're on the Super Nintendo is fixed, mm -hmm. but on this I'm going to let you select the level you want. Gotcha. That'll actually be helpful for some of the MSU audio games because uh, there was different revisions of the SD to SNES with uh, you know different ways that it processed yeah. the audio. So that'll actually be a big help for all of those. Yeah, that's what I heard. Some people are complaining it was like super loud. Only if you use older patched games with the newest revision, or if you put the audio mod onto it. So yeah, yeah. I mean it's situational, but that's uh, it's awesome that there's even that option. Yeah, so I figured it would be nice to do that. That way people can, um, you know, if they don't want the audio or they want it a lot quieter or louder, they can just move the slider and set it. So uh, I'm I'm assuming that it plays PAL games as well. I don't remember seeing that in the <laughs> listing, but it plays everything. Um, and are there any things like uh, in-game reset that you have in there or uh, reset to menu from the game? Yeah, here's a PAL Super Soccer, so that works. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's it's similar to the NT Mini in that regard, where you can reset from the controller and go back to the menu. Gotcha. So um, for the very few people that scoffed at the price, which a little ridiculous to me, um, that means that what you're getting for under you know for it's like two thirty with shipping or something. 
is you're getting something that's as sharp as a modded SNES Mini with an upscaler built in. It's not an upscaler. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, with the audio mod, with the Super CIC mod, with in-game reset and everything. So uh-huh. um, and if anybody has an issue with the price, or God forbid anybody tries to compare it to those Super Retro Trios or something, they need to uh, they need to keep in mind what, what exactly it is that they're getting here. Um, and I'm really excited that... Uh, although I, I did absolutely love the analog NT mini, I really, I always thought those metal designs were like a work of art. Um, but that's something like, I hope maybe, uh, analog still does that like a limited edition for people that really want something special. But the fact that it's in a plastic affordable case, it's absolutely killer. That just means you're going to open up the amount of people that are getting this to five times as many people that would have before. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like um, the direction we've gone with the plastic case. I figured this was going to be really big, and it seems to be really big. Everybody's been really happy about it. Yeah, yeah, I was definitely excited. In fact, the only complaints I had about the analog NT Mini was just that there wasn't a cheaper option for people that didn't want the yeah. premium tier. Uh, and this solves all that, so that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple on the back. You got your HDMI and your power is... um. John Carlson says power goes in here and video comes out there <laughs> or, or something like that. I don't know. I just always found that amusing. Um, but, how do you have it set up for any firmware updates? Is there an SD slot, a USB connector, anything like that? Uh, there's an SD card slot on the side, just like on the mini. Gotcha. For firmware updates. Gotcha. Um, now, uh, I just lost my train of thought. I was a little too excited about this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so the video output is HDMI. Um, and on the site, it says that it supports 1080p, but is yes. that 4X, 5X, or both? Um, it's now, it's unlimited. You can put it any number of um, X you want between 4 and 5X. Oh, oh, okay. And when you said unlimited, I'm like, does that mean it yeah. gets to 4K? Because wouldn't, wouldn't that be a massive uh, advertising yeah. feature? But Yeah, but no, you can, no, it's slider goes basically between 4X and 5X. So you can have anything in there now. That's awesome. I can't wait to see the differences between and how everything lines up. And uh, I'm assuming there's scan lines like uh, like last time, right? Yeah, I, I talked to Marshall, you know, the guy that does the Ultra. Oh, of course, yeah. HDMI, or Ultra HDMI. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he told me the secret for his hybrid scan line, so that's in there now. Good, good. I like... Uh... I like it when us in the retro gaming community takes care of each other and shares. <laughs> you know, that's, yes, uh, that's that, always helpful. That's pretty cool. So, so I have I have a, a thing like that in there. So now the scan lines change size with brightness. You know, like kind of CRT kind of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, and then uh, and there's also I have gamma correction now too, because cool. I think that's really important. Um, playing the CRT and the LCD right next to each other with the same game, it was very obvious that the gamma really needed boosting. Mm-hmm. You mean you with could, the scan lines on? No, well, with them on also, but even with them off. Oh, really? Yeah, the like on um, Airstrike Patrol on the on the title screen, it's like a gray. There's a gradient in the background that's a dark gray, and on the last screen, you can only see like two of the four levels, and on the CRT, you can see all four. Gotcha. So I, if you, I boosted the gamma a little bit, so now they look to me exactly the same between the LCD and the CRT. 
You know, I was actually just talking to Firebrand X about um, if there's any way to make uh, a high-quality flat-screen experience feel a little bit more like a CRT. Um, and we'd taken pictures of our monitors and stuff um, so that you could zoom in really close and see what the vertical scan lines look like. Uh-huh. Um, and we were, it's really tough because those scan lines change looks with the brightness on the screen. Um, yeah. I mean, it goes into a little more detail than that, but basically... Um, have you ever played with vertical scanline functions or anything like that? Or is there just not enough resolution in 1080p? Well, there's just really not enough resolution. If you had 4K, it would look, you know, you can make them look a lot more presentable. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in 1080, you're kind of limited. Which is really funny that, uh, you know, in order to mimic a thousand line 20 inch CRT, we probably need 8K. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's funny how you got to go so far forward just to go back. That. And then with the CRT, you got all sorts of things like blooming, you got secondary emission, and, you know, just stuff like that that it's hard to reproduce. Yeah, but the, the thing, the only thing with CRTs, um, as much as I feel like for you know, everybody that absolutely loves these games and want to experience them the original way and is crazy like me, Um, I I actually play a lot of stuff on my flat screen through the open source scan converter. Um, Uh But, you know, I still would always keep a CRT around, even if it's a consumer grade. And there's a lot of things I can't stand about CRTs. The geometry is never perfect. And, you know, how sometimes uh, if any of the the bloom is off, you get that weird, like, you know, the screen is a wave type of thing. Uh It's hard to describe without showing it on uh, camera. But it is the way... The way that those, I mean, for lack of a better word, vertical scan lines slice through the image, and the way as the characters pass across the screen, that is what really gives it the look of a CRT, in my opinion. So I guess there's something to look forward to in the future for uh, for people with 4K upscalers or for the next mm-hmm. generation of stuff. Is it still ridiculously expensive to use a 4K, um, an FPGA that's able to push 4K? I don't know if there really are any that can do it. I'm sure there are, but there's nothing that ever would be affordable. Yeah, I mean, like consumer product affordable. I, I had spoken yeah. to a few people about it for potential upscaler stuff, and they all said, I mean, you're talking $1,000 for a processor then for something yeah. that's a hobby product, not even a yeah. major manufacturer. So, And then there's also... Um, there's really, you know, like on regular HDMI for like 1080, there's, um, you know, driver chips that you can buy that you feed it RGB and all this other stuff, and it'll generate the HDMI. For 4K, I don't think that exists. You know, there's the data rate is a lot higher, so just feeding the data into it would be a lot more difficult. And almost everything that's 4K is all ASIC-based. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a custom chip they make just to do it. So, I mean, I have seen on the market, like, analog devices sells a, a chip that'll do a 4K upscale. But, I mean, who knows how good that is? And it's like the chip alone is like 90 bucks. So, you know, once you wrap the memory around it, the board and the A to D or whatever you're doing, it makes it, you know, prohibitively expensive. Gotcha. So we're probably looking at at least another two years before that's yeah, something. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Because with the way that, the, you know, the tech swing goes, they probably would announce something that's out in 2018 by now. So, yeah, two years at least, I would think. Yeah. So now the video outputs, you know, so you have your 1080p between 4x and 5x, 720p, 
uh, 480p, is that 480p both widescreen and 4x3 or just widescreen? Um, I'm not sure really. Yeah, I'm, I, have a, I have to go over all that stuff. Uh, the only still... reason I'm asking is because um, the lack of analog output, um, that is something a lot of people, I think, were really hoping to be able to play this on tube TVs. <laughs> Including uh -huh. even just like uh, a VGA monitor, because you could pick up really high quality ones for twenty, thirty dollars yeah. nowadays. Um, and there are those cheap um, HDMI to VGA converters that don't add any lag or anything, and you know just convert it straight up. But yeah. I, if it was a four eighty p widescreen signal, it would still be you know letterbox inside uh -huh. a square. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what'll happen if you plug one of those in. Gotcha. Now, um, I think the first time I had you on, I had asked you about one-to-one uh, -one digital output uh, for this exact uh, uh, purpose, um, in that, you know, with technology always changing and with a mod being done today, what's it five years from now, ten years from now, um, and when you have direct digital stuff, so like your, um, you know, like your Nintendo high-def NES, obviously your stuff like this... Uh, you know, analog to digital, you're always going to get noise. I don't care how good the installation is. I don't care how flawless everything is. It's just the, the realm of analog. Um, but when you go digital to digital, there's always the... I mean, it's perfect. It's ones and zeros. So is there any chance of the, the console uh, outputting just the direct original resolution and signal digitally? And then that way people with future processors can just interpret that signal and you know, 10 years from now when we all have 8K TVs, we'll be able to, to scale it properly? Or is that just not, uh, not I, in the cards? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's probably possible. I don't know if I'll have time to add it or inclination to add it. You know, if I got to do other stuff, you know, I only have so much time to work, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, of I, course. I can't add infinite numbers of things. And I have to balance, well, how many people are going to use this versus how long is it going to take to develop? Right, right, right. And very often the... um the loudest voice is actually the minority. So uh -huh. the people that you hear bitching and moaning, and sometimes I'm one of them, <laughs> no, sorry, but uh, sometimes the people that you hear aren't what the majority of people care about. So, um, yeah, it makes sense. Um, but one thing that we did hear last time was the exact clock speeds uh, for um, for speedrunners and stuff like that. Um, what... Um, so I guess you have the, the clock speed settings for this so people could choose which one they want, correct? Yeah, well, now i got a frame buffer so I can do a lot more things. Mm -hmm. So I have three modes. I have the zero lag mode like usual where the system runs at 60 hertz. And then I have the single frame and full buffered. So those run at the actual SNES speed. So that's like more like a, like a frame meister on a Super Nintendo. So that was. Um, could you explain a little bit more about that? So when you ha uh, you said the the no lag sixty hertz version. Um, so uh, why would why would the other ones require a frame buffer if that's the original clock speed? Because the a regular Super Nintendo outputs sixty point oh nine frames a second. It's not quite sixty, so it matters. So you would need the frame buffer to increase that. No, the frame buffer is there because you have to drop a frame every now and again. Oh, okay. Make 60. Okay, so the no lag mode is actually the original uh, output. Yeah, well, n no, the 
no lag modes, my special version of the output that runs at 60 frames a second, the system does. Okay, gotcha. Where it's slightly slowed down. It's just like on the high def or whatever. And is the is it when it's running at the actual SNES clock speed, um, does that add any lag at all, or is that still about a no-lag solution? Oh, no, it adds lag. You know, you got up to one frame of lag. Actually, what ends up happening, um, if you watch it, the lag starts out at zero, and it creeps up to 16 milliseconds, and then it snaps back to zero when it drops a frame. Oh, okay. That's I what gotcha. The frame meister is doing that, too. Mm-hmm. You know, lag goes up. It's like a ramp, because, you know... It's getting farther and farther and farther and farther behind, and then when the next frame it skips, it goes bump back down to zero, and then it creeps back up again, and then goes back down. It's like a it's like a try it's like a sawtooth. Gotcha. Okay, that makes more sense now. Thanks for explaining. And what was the third option then? Um, well, that's full buffered mode, and then there's also have a single buffer mode, so you'll see tearing. Okay. So. You know what I mean? So it'll it'll keep filling the same buffer over and over again. But you know, if you're scrolling left and right, you may you'll see a tearing go up the screen as it um, as the writing you know heterodynes with the screen refresh. Gotcha. Because you know, the HDMI is scanning the buffer out, and Super Nintendo's filling the buffer, and then where they meet, you know, one gets behind the other like this, and that's where the tear line happens. Oh, okay, okay. So I figured, you know, speedrunners may want one or the other, so it doesn't cost anything to include both. Awesome. And no one's going to complain about more options. So that's, uh, that is very cool. Um, so when you say, uh, you know, you, you've been working on this for, for months now, um, do you still have your day job? Oh, yeah, I do. But I cut back my hours a bit to work on this. Oh, wow. Okay. So I've been working on work- cryogenics, right? Yes, that's right. So uh, last time you explained, you're not freezing people's heads and stuff. Um, no. You're for the, the medical, the other side of the medical Yeah, labs, medical. Right? Cell samples, blood, fertility. Gotcha. Uh, do you, uh, is there a crossover in, uh, in some of the skills that you use between programming these FPGA consoles and doing that? I mean, do you find, you know, similarities in programming stuff or is it uh, just two different things? Well, um, one of our older controls, it has a Z80 on it and an EEPROM and UARTs and all this. Those mm-hmm. parts were even really expensive, so I redesigned it with an FPGA using my Z80 core that's in the like the Master System. That is the coolest thing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> so I emulated, I designed the control back in 97, so then uh, about four or five years ago, I redesigned it with an FPGA. And so now it's running an, a Z80 on the FPGA. It's, it's doing the EEPROM on there and all that. Gotcha. So it made it smaller and cheaper. But, you know, it runs the same firmware exactly. It's bit exact firmware. So, it's, I mean, it's just like a video game system, only it's a cryogenic control instead. That's very cool. So then you would just come home and start plugging away at the SNES? Well, yeah, pretty much my day is I go to work, I come home have supper, and then I take a nap, and then I get up and work until about 7 in the morning, and I go back to bed. What time do you go to work? Uh, about 1 Oh, okay, okay. So you're on the, the rotating schedule or something. Yeah, I, I get about three and a half hours at my day job. So are you um are you one of the crazy people like me and Voltar where this is your hobby? Or do you have other hobbies that you try to, to squeeze in when you're not you know working like crazy? 
Well, I just do a lot of uh, electronics projects. So I make other FPGA devices too. I made like a, well, I guess it's still video game related. It's a cartridge emulator for about a dozen systems. So that's been really useful for development. So I have a, like an SA1 cartridge for this. Hmm. So I can plug it in and load ROMs on, on my emulator and run them on a real system or real SA1 chip too. And you still have your uh, the music devices that you designed as well, right? Yeah, I still have those too. So for anybody that didn't catch the last interview, would you be able to just tell a little bit about those? Because I, I thought those were fucking awesome. <laughs> Well, I made a SPC music player. Well, I made several, but uh, I made an SPC one, which is relevant to this discussion. And it takes SD cards, you load your files on there, and it has an LCD, headphone jack, and a user interface, and you can select games. It's like a little jukebox that's handheld. Love it. Awesome. Um, now, you, uh, you were the person who wrote the NSF file format, right? That's correct. Um, so that NSF player that's in the uh, the analog NT mini that that's pretty neat. I like that uh, that you could put it through and actually have it come through um, with you know uh, sounding the way it was meant to be heard. I guess through you know the the FPGA emulation of the actual consoles. So that's that's a yeah. fun little addition to that. That is very old too. Yeah, didn't you say it was like from two thousand or ninety eight or something like that? Well, no, the, no, that NSF player, that was in my original FPGA Nintendo that I did. You know, I started that in 2004. Mm-hmm. So that NSF player was probably 2004 or 2005. Jeez. And that's pretty much the exact format it was in. It looked just like that that long ago, too. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's actually an NES ROM that runs. Right, right, right. It's just the, only the music in it and nothing else. No, I'm talking about the interface, that visualizer. That's a, that's a NES program oh okay you know that shows all the moving stuff so when you do all these things when you you know you start to to make some of these fpga cores um what tools do you use do you have anything you know any tool secrets you could uh you could share with us that isn't you know top secret or anything like that no there's really no nothing special um i may just sit down and write it I do, like, I have a logic analyzer. I've used that for, like, Game Boy, trying to figure out how the LCD works on the Game Boy. That is incredibly difficult. I think the Game Boy video rendering is the most complicated rendering thing I've ever seen. Really? Yeah. You wouldn't think so. But the way it's designed is, um, since it has an LCD, it's unlike a CRT. When you're sending video to it, you can't stop sending video to a CRT. You know, you got to keep sending it on the Game Boy LCD. No, they shut the LCD off. Well, they stop clocking data into it to fetch sprites. So it's like renders the background. Oh, here's a sprite, and it stops sending pixels out, fetches the sprite, and then starts back up again. Is that why there's so much uh, shimmering and ghosting on that screen? No, it's just the LCD. Oh, gotcha. Okay. No, what they do is uh, it, la- it loads the data in the LCD, and then they latch the data. So you don't see it actually loading it. You see it latch it, and that shows the line. Mm-hmm. And the lines come in at the same rate. So if they didn't come in at the same rate, some lines would be darker than others. Mm-hmm. So, no, you can't tell this is happening, but this is basically what happens behind in the background. And the other thing that's interesting about it, it, it can't, the Game Boy can't scroll side to side with a single pixel like accuracy, but it still does. And the secret is, is it 
it neglects to clock the display a certain number of times at the start of the line. So if you don't clock the pixels in, it won't display them, right? That's kind of an ingenious design, though. It is. It's very ingenious. Yeah, that's what is so hard. Is I mean, they did all these little tricks like this, and I mean, the idea, the trick is pretty easy. You know, you just don't clock the pixels, and you send them out. You say, okay, I'm just not going to clock in the first pixel. Well, that causes the whole screen to shift over one pixel. Mm -hmm. You don't clock in two, then it shifts over two. So after seven pixels, what they do is then they um, clock all of them out, but then the, the tile changes, so it starts on the next tile. So that gives you the illusion that it's smoothly scrolling. Hmm. I mean, Imagine being in the room when somebody came up with that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what drugs they were on, but they were really good stuff. I uh, I was very lucky for many years to be involved in a company where everybody was smarter than me, which I, I love. I'd rather have it that way than any of the rest. And I've been in rooms before where we all looked at each other and somebody was like, well, why don't you you know, just not clock the pixels or whatever it was? And the whole room was like, how the fuck did you think of that? That is, that is awesome. Like, uh, And it's just such a – I know I'm, I'm nerding out here, but feeling the energy in something like that and having such a unique idea – so lucky that I was so lucky to be a part of that, and I could just imagine how many stories the Nintendo guys have like that. Yeah, well, it's kind of fun to uncover all the little things they did like that, like on the Game Boy. You know, so it's, um, it looks like what they tried to do was make it as simple as possible in hardware, you know, to do the functionality versus like a CRT, you know, so they could stop the clock. So that means they could load the, the sprite in when they needed it. But, um, so what they what that allowed them to do is have these sprites, and they only needed one sprite like engine, so to speak. Like on the Nintendo for the eight sprites that you can show on a scan line, you actually have to read all eight of those sprites in and have eight identical units that render those sprites all in parallel. Hmm. On the Game Boy, there's just one unit, and as they need the pixels, they load them in. And, you know, so as the screen renders, oh, here's a sprite, it stops rendering, fetches the sprite, and then emits the sprite as it draws the screen. And so if another sprite is fetched that's supposed to be on top, it just replaces the pixels that haven't been, you know, clocked out yet and shown. So that's how the sprites can overlap. Hmm. You know, in all of my video game research over the past five or six years since I started the site, I usually found the opposite. I usually find all the mistakes, and especially on the Sega consoles, but most notoriously the Master System. I still can't even... And by obviously everybody that knows my channel knows I, I'm not an electrical engineer. I just, uh, you know, I just play one on TV. But um, some of the things, trying to trace out some of the weird signal issues for the Master System, even not being an E, I just look at that sometimes and go like, what were, what were they thinking? Did they not were they not actually educated in in making board design, or was it like very stereotypical case where everything's done, and then somebody needs a change made, and that change causes all these other problems, but whoever's on the top of the chain goes screw it, send it to manufacturing, you know, <laughs> which is it's that's life sometimes, you know, if it, um, if the EEs of the world had the final say of when things would be released, we'd never have products. <laughs> All my perfectionist friends would never want anything released if it wasn't some sales guy going, too late, deadline's up, sell it, it's fine. So. I mean, that, that sometimes that happens. So, you know, like on this project, I had to, you know, try and get everything done as fast as I could with this, the accuracy I could get. So 
I'm really happy with it. I think for the amount of time I had to work on it, mm-hmm. I mean, everything runs. I have not, you know, after debugging, I haven't found anything that doesn't run. Hmm. So I think my accuracy is very good. Oh, I even tried a, a Dr. SF6, you know, disk-based copier thing. That even works. So I think these were the things that I used to read about in magazines as kids, but never actually used. Was that the where you could back up a game to a, a floppy drive? Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> that works. <laughs> that stupid thing works, yeah. What was the thing that you were talking about before? The um, the thing that you held up to the camera that I'd never heard of either. That super oh, the awesome. Sufami Turbo. What is that? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, people call it, they they say it's like an Aladdin for the Super Nintendo, you know, like the Aladdin on the Nintendo. Right, right. The, the idea was, is you could buy these small carts and they were supposed to be cheaper. Mm-hmm. And then they plug into the system. And there's two ports on here. I did some research. And this is mainly so you could copy save games back and forth. And you could also, on one of the games, there's like a series, you could plug a second cartridge in. It was kind of like the lock-on cartridge for um, Sonic. For Sonic. Yeah, yeah. And Sonic and Knuckles. Neat. I, it was very similar to that, apparently. I, I'm assuming that's Japan only? Yes. Uh-huh. Like so many of the other neat gadgets that we didn't get over here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this works great. It's funny, if you put the cartridge over here... It'll actually complain and tell you it has a little graphic that says, like, take it out of here and put it into here. That's cool. Hey, at least it's smart enough to do that. So. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. I mean, I mean, how do, how do I know what side it's supposed to go in? You know? <laughs> just, they're marked A and B. I guess you put it in A, so I don't know. But that's just how it works. Hmm. So, yeah, everything I can stuff in that cart slot works. I have one of those Naki Game Saver Pluses, and that works. Have you ever seen that thing? Uh, I've seen pictures. I've never seen it in person. Oh, but yeah, it plugs in. You plug your cartridge into the back of it, and then you can save the game state and reload it. Yeah, you know, I saw that at uh, Retro Games Plus, the game store where I used to live, and I almost bought it, and then when I went back, it was gone. But I always wanted to play with that. I assume it's buggy because save is. states are really hard. Uh, do you are there save save states implemented? In no, there's save states. Uh, you know, to do that right is a, a ridiculous it's amount of work. Hard. Well, it, and even if I could do it, save states wouldn't work for, like, games with expansion chips. Mm, right, right, gotcha. Um, so do you want to chime in at all? And I know this is something we could probably talk about for a while, so, you know, I guess just give your overall opinion. There, there's always an ongoing debate, and, and some are just trolls looking to pick a fight, uh, but there's a lot of people that have genuine opinions on both sides on, you know, is FPGA emulation? Uh, I certainly have my thoughts, but I kind of want to hear what you what you have to say about that. No, I don't really think it's emulation. Emulation to me means, I mean, you could debate all day long the exact definition of emulation and all that. I don't really think it is emulation. Mm-hmm. Emulation to me is a CPU of some kind executing code that emulates a system. You know, like a PC emulator. That's always in my brain what that was, too. You have, you know, uh, a piece of software running on a software layer, running on an operating system, run through, you know, your CPU, bus, and and all that memory and all that stuff. Yeah, and it's usually, it's almost always done on a general purpose computer, you know, like your PC or a phone or a tablet or Mm -hmm. whatever. You know, it's not usually done on purpose-built hardware. Right. See, this is purpose-built hardware for... Super Nintendo, in this case. 
Right. So, um, you know, the, the troll arguments aside, the ones that, you know, if it's not in the plastic of a Super Nintendo, it's not a Super <laughs> Nintendo. If Nintendo didn't design it, it's not real. Like, you know, forget about those trolls. Um, my interpretation of this is always, uh, you know, uh, excuse the layman's terms here, but um, uh, software emulation is code running on software layers running through a general purpose machine. In FPGA emulation, if you will, um, is one chip that's designed to mimic other chips as exact as possible. Is that a yeah. decent enough explanation? Yeah, well, you know, when I write, I don't write software. I write, um, you know, a hardware definition language. I write in Verilog. You know, it's a hardware definition language. That's what they call it, an HDL. Mm -hmm. So when I write my code, it's actually not, it's defining registers flip-flops and logic gates is what it's doing it's a text representation of a schematic gotcha that's, that's the way i look at it okay that uh that's a better way to describe it than than i've been so <laughs> that's thank you for that um and i also you know made the the basic layman's conclusion that um fpga design much like anything else that's written all depends on how good the, uh, how good it, it's written, and for lack yeah. of, well, terms, of course. So. Yeah, I mean, just because it's on an FPGA doesn't make it magic, you know, perfect. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all the work I go through, you know, for my testing and development. You know, everything I've done so far, like on the PPU, for example, you know, since I had a real PPU running in parallel with my FPGA version, I could do a direct comparison of all the outputs as it ran, so that's how I know, say, my mode 7 is exactly the same. It's because, you know, I did mode 7, and then I can watch the fetching from VRAM, so I know I'm fetching the exact same pixels on both. Right. And, you know, I've seen FPGA cores that were unfinished, so I'm not picking on the developers, but I've seen FPA, FPGA cores that were unfinished where, you know, I'd rather play on a software emulator. And like I said, I'm certainly not shitting on those developers. It was unfinished and they were nice enough to send it over just for me to mess with. But so, you know, I've definitely seen both. I've seen the analog NT mini where, uh, man, I, I put that thing through its paces. I mean, hours of stupid comparison shots and all the crap that I usually do. And it was, I mean, it's spot on. And, you know, like I said, I've seen the ones that aren't. So I definitely, I definitely could see the difference, I guess, with those. And, for me personally, um, even with my crazy OCD, if I sit down and play a game and there's no lag and it feels the same and it has the same controller, that is something that, that you know, the shape and the buttons do, you know, that's the way that game was designed to be played. Yeah, yeah, but as long as all those fall into place, I mean, as long as it's the same experience, then that's more than good enough for me. So uh, I just, uh, I, I genuinely don't understand where some of the trolls are going with that, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I just uh, if it's done well and the attention to detail that you you put into your stuff is uh, is pretty awesome. So, yeah, it's kind of like that for everybody though. It's kind of like yeah. uh, you know playing the Super NT, uh, or I guess the better description would be the analog NT Mini with NES cartridges versus like the Retron HD. Um, there are many people out there where that you know that super cheap and affordable Retron console that outputs HDMI is fine for them they you know they don't care about the difference it plays fine and that's totally cool uh but those of you who want the quality and uh, want it want it uh, the the proper experience go to the better product it's the same with music too you know yeah. mm -hmm. i've listened to people's albums i've even listened to professional albums 
where as I'm listening, I'm like, there's a punching, there's a cut. Nope, nope, they dubbed the voice wrong. You can hear where it, like, and it drives me crazy because I love music. So it's, you know, when I hear something that's great, you know, I just, I always, I always can tell the difference. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm on the spectrum or something. <laughs> Fuck it, I'll take it. I enjoy life like this. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You know, when I make my cores, I want to make them as good as I can make them, you know, because... I, I look at the, if you, you know, competition, I don't really think there's, I'm in competition with anybody, but, you know, just to use lack of a better term, you know, I, I, I look at, you know, what other people have written and, you know, I don't know why that no one can really finish anything, it seems, at least on some systems. I mean, there's a good Amiga core, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, Atari ST, and I mean, there's some better stuff, but say 10 years ago, there was nothing. You know, but I kind of find that everywhere in life. You know, when I was a kid, I I loved racing, drag racing cars, to- totally legal, totally. And, uh, you know, all the time people have, you know, there are the barstool racers. They're, they have a car they're going to buy. Oh, they bought the car. They're still working on it. Oh, they're totally going to be down at the track at the end of the week. And it's just, you know, it never, never materializes. And it's uh-huh. I, every hobby I've ever had. You know, there's just, when uh, the last band I was in, the first gig we played, we met a bunch of very fun-loving, beer-drinking guys. Oh, yeah, we're working on an album and a video. Oh, so are we. Six months later, I had that, and now they are pissed at me because I have it and they don't. <laughs> well, I fi- I, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. Like, so yeah. I, I feel like that's got to be a massive part of that, you know, unless people are, um, unless that's their day job, a lot of people let projects that are hard fall at the wayside because it's just don't like to do things that are hard so. well well that's why i noticed on I'm, i can't remember who it was I was reading one of the forums this guy released a lot of cores for i think the fpga arcade board or something i'm not ragging on or anything but mm-hmm. you know, he's like oh well i made a game boy core i had to modify i had to fix all the bugs in the open source you know z80 core that had a game boy extension and blah 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 so he did that you know, he got some games running, but then he just gave up when it got hard. You know, there's no sound because, you know, he didn't want to do sound. And, yeah, there was, like, sprite bugs and all these bugs. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, some games work. Okay, that's enough for me. I'll just move on to, you know, something else. Yeah, well, you just hit the nail on the head. You know, people give up when it gets hard. And then... it, it got hard. So, you know, it took me three times to get that Game Boy to work right. You know, the video. Jeez, about it... how many hours do you think that equates to? <laughs> It was a lot. It was hard. I, like I said, I think that Game Boy video is like one of the hardest things I've ever done. I mean, it seems stupid. You know, how hard could it be? Well, it was really hard. You know, it's funny to talk to people uh, who go the distance with things and they all have the same mentality. Like I interviewed Mike Mateo a while back and I was joking that, you know, he's very obviously better at games than me. And, you know, he was kind of like, no, not, not at all. The difference is when a game gets hard, I don't give up. I keep playing <laughs> until I beat it and put that video online. Yeah. I loved that. It was such a cool, you know, nerd motivational uh, talk that he gave. But it's, yeah, not, you know, just finishing what you started and trying to do your best is, is you know, it, it's a rare quality these days. That's why I'm so appreciative of actually a lot of the people that have been helping out the past couple of years in the, the retro gaming scene to punch through some of these problems that we've been having. So, Yeah, I mean, like on the Super Nintendo, you know, I was working, uh, well, with my day job, probably at least 12 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, this whole year. Yeah, it's, uh, it's frustrating. You start to, it, life kind of blinks by, and you start to miss a few things. <laughs> you know, it's a... Uh, 
it's frustrating sometimes, but yeah. Well, I mean, I I think it was worth it. I mean, it looks like the response has been awesome. I've been really happy reading all the comments and things. You know, there's people trolling about everything. They always do. I just, you, I, you I, could I, give everybody on the planet a million dollars, and somebody's going to troll you. So you, yeah. you know, it's oh no, I I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I just find it interesting. Some of the things people complain about, even on the NT Mini, things people were complaining about, I thought were interesting. So the biggest complaint, yeah. I think, is people are saying, oh, well, this doesn't have analog out. And it's like, yeah, well, just get a regular, you know, one in RGB modded, you know, like, yeah. a, top, or so like a junior or something. That's kind of my opinion on this. And, you know, I know not everybody can solder, but that's why I like to use myself as an, uh, an example, because I am not good at it. Everybody that's seen my work, you know, it looks great, but I, I work hard to get it. But that's not a natural talent of mine. And even oh, yeah. somebody like me can take a SNES Mini, put one of Voltar's boards in it. You know, it, I'm sure if I if I stopped soldering for like a year, it'd probably take two hours to do that project. I could do it like mm. ten minutes now, but but it's doable. And now you have perfect analog output. You know, grab a good shielded cable that you know the what twenty five dollar board or something, and you have everything that you could ask for right there. Perfect analog. So the opposite of that. Uh, the NES, that's, you know, you get what you pay for. It's a good board, but it's an expensive board. And mm -hmm. it's a really hard install because you have to desolder the chip. And if you don't have the right tools, which are expensive. It, it, it's impossible, you, just about. Right. I mean, I tried desoldering like a 7805, one of the little voltage regulators with one of those pump things. Oh, and, and that took like a half hour. I finally oh. got a, a knockoff Hako 808, and that's literally bzz, 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 done, like 10 seconds. Well, on the 7805, it's really easy. You just put the iron across all three pins and pull it out. Beginner. Beginner. That's a <laughs> trick. That's a trick that I know now, but I didn't know then. And it's, you know, it, it in order to get, and, you know, all the other cores, uh, you know, a ColecoVision, you need a scope in order to actually do a proper RGB output for that because of the uh -huh. wide swing of tolerances and you know, the master system, I still haven't cracked, and people way smarter than me haven't cracked getting all of the jail bars out of a master system. So, I don't think you may not be able to. I actually, after all I've seen, uh, I don't think you can. <laughs> but, in, you know, it. so, you know, my point is the the SNES not having an analog output, or the, the SNES NT, uh, doesn't matter. You could very yeah, affordably yeah, and very easily get the analog side of it. Whereas all of those other consoles, having analog output was a necessity because it solved a lot of issues that it had. Mm -hmm. so. and it was just a, simply a cost issue here. You know, to hit our target cost, we had to cut analog pretty much, you know? Yeah, and you know, a lot of people that, uh, that are users, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I myself am a huge user of stuff, but that are only users don't, don't see the steps and the dominoes fall. So they see something like, well, you know, a VGA connector is like a, a dollar, and, you know, the extra chips is, you know, a, you know, like $4. But they don't see the implementation. They don't see the testing. They don't see the support afterwards. A lot of people don't even realize how much it costs to, to answer support emails. Oh, so yeah. It's, uh, I, be, and I probably wouldn't have either. I probably should have said that first. I wouldn't have noticed those things either if I didn't work in a company that made hardware for things. So, you know, w when you say to reduce cost, it's not just the cost of the unit. It's the cost of everything you have to do afterwards and everything you've done before. 
Yeah, it's, well, there's a lot of costs. You know, like even just on the hardware, you got the circuit board. You got, you know, maybe you have to have a bigger chip. You got to have the DAX, and you got to have the, the, you know, the the sockets or the plugs or the jacks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you may need a different power supply on there to run just that part too. So that's more hardware. And then you got to write all the, in my case, the Verilog to support it. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there is a lot. There's a lot of hidden costs in there and time and debugging analog interference so i know nothing about verilog and i so i can't speak to that but i do know when uh when you lay out a board and guys like renee from db electronics he knows as good as anybody um you know it's anything audio or video you have a great layout everything's spaced out perfectly you have the board made you put all the uh, the components in Hey, I'm getting a buzzing in the audio. Hey, what's the weird thing in the video about? You go back, you triple check everything. It's fine. It's perfect. And then you have to realize like, oh, I guess this must be radiating across and that must be coupling with. And, it, you know, it, digital has its uh, huge challenges, but it's totally different than analog. And there's a lot of stuff on analog that you can't even debug until you have like a final working board revision. Well, I don't know about that. You know, I, I lay out analog all the time, and I don't have these issues. You just really? have to have a good layout. Well, look at the NT Mini and the Super here. The Super's got analog, you know, the analog in from the cartridge. And True. the power supplies are analog. You know, even though they're switching supplies or whatever, they're still analog. And all the power routing is very important. So you can't, I don't know, I can't really describe it. I just have a feel for it. So I know when I lay out something analog, it's going to work and not have, you know, interference and stuff. Yeah, but that's more of a reflection on your talents than it is on analog. And, you know, I'm not just saying that because you're the one being interviewed. Everybody has their thing. You know, Dave Mustaine could pick up a guitar and make four notes sound vicious and angry. You know, that's his talent. So, (laughs) Um, but yeah, that's a... It's really not that hard. I mean, there's just some basics, um, basic like guidelines I just go through when I lay it out, I guess. You know, you don't want anything digital anywhere near your analog. You gotta have your grounding right. Don't break up your ground planes. You know, for God's sake, don't use a two-layer board if you can help it. Make sure everything runs at the proper voltage. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, where the, where does the noise come in? Well, the noise comes in from digital signals, so keep them away. It comes in on the power, so filter your power and make sure your supplies aren't noisy and you'll have a good time of it and make sure you don't have ground loops. Don't. I was don't, just about to say ground loops and audio are the bane of every musician. <laughs> yeah, don't put digital here, digital here, and analog in the middle. Because what's going to happen, those ground currents are going to flow straight across and get right in your analog. You know, what's actually funny is I had a, a very high-end amp that I, you know, I've been wanting my whole life, and I finally bought the newer revision of it. And no matter what, if you put it in the, the most distorted channel, even if, you, even if you have everything unplugged, so the amp is just on, there was a loud hum. And one of my friends said, oh, yeah, I just replaced two of these things. I've done it before on other amps. So I'm looking into it, and something told me. I was like, it doesn't sound right. So I brought it, and it was a manufacturer defect, and that's exactly what they did. It was a ground loop. <clears throat> Excuse uh-huh. me. So they ended up replacing it for free, <laughs> which is pretty killer, and that, that's not something that happens very often anymore, especially for something that's almost $2,000. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a uh, uh, – I don't know. I, maybe it's just my history with guitars and music stuff, but analog audio has always just been such a headache. <laughs> I just don't have any problem with it. I mean, it just, you know, I mean, just 
follow some basic layout guidelines. You know, I see lots and lots of really bad board layouts on the OSH park. I love looking through all the, you know, they, you can see all the designs people have submitted, you know, if they have it open. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's interesting to go through those boards to see. It's like, okay, this is a really awesome board. This guy knows what he's doing. Okay, this person, you know, they're kind of median and this person doesn't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> Yeah, my, my only yeah. problem with that is a lot of these guys on the forums and a lot of these guys, uh, when you talk to them, will say things like, you know, hey, this is only like my second board, so I'm just going to put it up here, but, you know, be careful with it and, you know, improve it if you will. But that info isn't on the page where you could actually get the board. Yeah. So that you end up, uh, a lot of people end up getting boards that are, I guess the best way to put them is they're not finished. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And have to and have to deal with that. So I wish there was a better way for people to flag it. And of course, there are always the guys that think they're awesome at everything and then just post a crappy board. But you know. Well, on IRC, I've helped a lot of people with their board layouts. Like someone will send me, "Oh, here's my board layout. Look at it." And I'll say, "Oh, yeah, fix this, 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 and this." And then they relay it out. And I was like, "Okay, that looks a lot better now. So you should have a lot better." I was like, "Okay, if you move this and this, then you don't need these twenty vias." You know. Right. So I don't know. I've just been doing it so long, I guess, that it's just not a problem now. I don't I don't know. Yeah, you, you know, were I, probably doing it before auto route. Before you could I just press use, that. Button. I do not use auto do not use auto route. Don't use, <laughs> don't use it. It's horrible. You know, it's funny because uh like I said, I I don't do board design, I'm not an EE, but I've actually been able to tell now when some of the beginners and you know, like I said, especially the guys that that are honest and open about it. We'll send well, they say, a... oh, auto route, that's what I want to use. I mean, how are they supposed to know, you know? Right, and they send me the board, and I'll look at it, and I'll go, you know, I'm not an expert, but I'm pretty sure that's auto route, because you wouldn't do that. You'd want it over, <laughs> so... Well, yeah, that's the thing. You know, auto routing is a very difficult thing. It's never going to be very good. There's one good use of auto route. If you got 20 BGAs on a 20-layer board, then you use auto route, you know? But, I mean, auto-routing, I guess, can be okay, but you need really expensive tools, and you have to write lots of rules and all that. And, you know, for stuff like this, it's just not worth it. You know, I lay out those BGAs, you know, by hand. It's really not that hard. It doesn't really take that long, and, you know, everything is all very direct. I don't know if you you ever look at the routing on, like, the NT Mini. Everything is all just perfect. You know, everything just radiates out from that FPGA. There's no crossing, no vias, no nothing. Yeah, it's the first thing I noticed when I took that thing apart was just it looked like uh, the perfect spider web of things going. There wasn't anything crossing, so that was uh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So that super NTs, you know, same type of thing. The FPGA is a lot bigger, too. <laughs> so there's a much bigger part in there now. So there's, even, there's twice as much FPGA in there as in the NT Mini. So, are you still working at all on the Zimba 3000, or has that just become like a, you know, a backseat project for you? Well, it's a back burner project. I don't get paid for it, so, you know, I gotta eat. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, is that something that's just still, you know, you're, you're working on here and there, and we'll have it down the line, or are you just kind of like, well, you know, all my work's already been implemented in this, so... I, I, I don't know, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, the option is open to do it, but... Honestly, I don't know if people will pay for it, you know. I have no way of making it cheap enough compared to, you know, like an NT Mini or a Super NT. So, I, you know, I'm not trying to sound like a know-it-all, but I'm pretty sure I could answer that question. Is there is a small group of people that not only would they pay for it, they'll pay for it now and expect it in 2019, but 
I don't know if that's a volume that would uh, justify the time and would pay you enough to be able to pull that off. That's the that, issue. That's the thing. I just don't know about the payback, you know? I mean, I can, I can do it. Can I do it? Sure. Is, there, is it going to be worth my time to do it? I'm not sure at this point. Yeah, I mean, I got all these cores and all this stuff, but I mean, I mean, I can get them running on a, on a Zimba 3000, but I mean, is it really worth it to the user, right? You know, you know, you know, will they pay however much it costs? I don't know how much it would be, but, you know, then I still have to make some kind of enclosure. You know, I don't have an injection molding machine in my, in my garage, so it'd be made out of, say, laser cut, you know, polycarbonate or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do have one of those at work, so... <laughs> Um, are you still playing around with other cores for the analog NT Mini when uh, you know whenever you have free time? I know that you were still working. Well, on your... I haven't had any free time, but um, I plan on finishing the port of that Intellivision. You know, bef- you know, in the next couple months, I want to get that out of there. So, um, are you still planning on selling controller adapters for the NT Mini controller and cartridge adapters? Um, well, I got those. I was thinking Jason from Game Tech. You may want to sell those. I'm sure he would want to get involved in that because that's something that, uh, you know, once again, it might just be the, you know, the core followers that love this stuff and not just the person who wanted the, you know, the art, the piece of art that they could play their new oh, yeah, on. Yeah. But that is definitely something that I feel like would uh, would justify the cost because you're not talking about a lot of cost versus what it would be to make a console. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, the one thing I was personally most excited for was the SMS. Um, with the uh, 3D glasses port, because uh, I love those games. I don't know why. There's Maze Hunter's Amazing and uh, Missile Defense 3D. It's a game uh-huh. that I just love to play for 10 minutes. Just shoot shit in 80s 3D. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I forgot to put that on there. <laughs> I, can, I can always add it. But, um, but yeah, the the cartridge adapters, you know, they were really easy to make. You know, it's just a pin converter, so... But the hard part about cartridge adapters is the physical part. The electronics is easy. It's always the, the packaging is a pain. So, yeah, that's why a lot of people just sell PCB only for stuff like that. Yeah. Well, is you there... know, what I, mm-hmm. what I was thinking of selling was like the board and then two pieces of plexiglass that go on either side of the board to make it like a cartridge shape so you can plug it in. That's literally exactly what I was about to say. Is there a way to just get two pieces of plexi that you could bolt on and just have it go down to protect it? Yeah. Yeah, if you look at the board, there's holes specifically for that purpose. Oh, cool. Well, um, man, this is awesome. Uh, is there anything Is there anything I forgot to ask that you wanted to to mention about all this stuff? Um, It's coming out in February. You can pre-order it now. Mm -hmm. A ton of different colors. Uh, I got the clear one because I'm a nerd and I want to see what's inside. Yeah, (laughs) I think the clear one's my favorite one, too. Awesome. Um, I don't know. Anything else, I guess? Well, not really. I did add some what I call quality of life features. So, um... Like, there's a thing called pseudo high res mode that the Super Nintendo does. So, have you ever played the game Jurassic Park? It has like this overlay. Yeah. And it like looks like lines. If you use like RGB or an emulator, it's like broken up into lines, vertical lines. Mm-hmm. And so, what I do, I have a blending mode that will get rid of the lines and blend it so it's like a transparent effect. So, so it's kind of like the waterfall in uh, Sonic the Hedgehog on c- composite versus RGB. 
Kind of. I have a, um, you can probably include it in the video. I'll put it in the Skype window. Um, what it looks like. I have an example of what it looks like before and after the blending effect. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it a note. I'll definitely put that in for people to look at. Um, do you know, do you have another project uh, queued up, or are you basically just you know, looking forward to being able to take a deep breath? <laughs> well, I still got work to do, so there's still plenty I got to, you know, all the little loose ends and things, but the Super Nintendo itself is fully done and fully operational. You know, everything works. I've played the hell out of all sorts of games on it. I'd love to show it off. I can't show it off, unfortunately, yet, but... No, that's it's understandable. So yeah, it won't be very long. I'll probably be able to show it off. I mean, there'll be other other things too. But um, I have uh, 83 gigs of video I've taken during the whole entire development process. Oh, that's awesome! So you're gonna release them in like little chunks on your YouTube channel? Yeah, yeah, probably sometime next year after it ships. But yeah, I mean, I show everything. I you know, basically the whole process of how I reverse engineered it, and all the way through production of the final prototype and then into the you know the production model that we got now Jeez, I, I absolutely love stuff like that so i'll make sure to put a link to your youtube channel down below and everybody subscribe so that uh <laughs> and it pops up in their feed when uh when you get to upload those so but yeah i'm really excited to release that because you know i've never actually done that for anything mm -hmm. you know it's mainly like okay here it is but you know there's no backstory of how it got there yeah i think that's um I don't know. I, I feel like that's definitely something that a lot more people than you would expect would be very interested to watch. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that are fans of your work that uh, that would appreciate that. So I'm glad that you're you're able to post it. Well, this is the first time I've done this direct chip comparison, you know, methodology for reverse engineering, and it it I think it sped um sped development up three or four times. Oh wow! Huh. You know, it would have been. Otherwise, I'd have to write test ROMs, hook up a logic analyzer, that J.W. Donald guy, you know, the Verisness guy. Yeah. That's what he did. You know, he hooked logic analyzers up to a Super Nintendo and, you know, made test ROMs and ran things. And re he said claims they have 90 gigabytes of trace logs or something. So, but the thing is, I didn't need any of that because I was doing the direct comparison. So... I didn't really need test ROMs. I had a couple test ROMs, but they were timing test ROMs. Hmm. Then I have like a PPU debugger. It's a big screen with all the registers, and you can poke the registers, upload graphics. Then you can just I could display it on the CRT and the HDMI and do a direct compare, you know, modify things and make sure it works perfectly in both places. Check the, you know, the addresses and all that. That's how I knew everything was right. I kind of took development and turned it around and went bottom up one chip at a time versus top down system, you know, down to the lower level. And I think that's what really, you know, sets this apart. Hmm. Well, hopefully, um, I, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people over the past few years that are younger and looking to get into this and uh, have the drive and they're certainly gaining the knowledge to, to do it eventually. So Hopefully the, the younger generation of people that are jumping into this will use that as maybe a jumping off point on where to learn and to get their own tricks. So it's awesome that you're sharing that. Yeah. So basically, you only have to succeed once. <laughs> so, you know, there's thousands and thousands of failures, but 
when it succeeds, then you know you've got it. And that's what it takes. You know, I fail hundreds or thousands of times during development, but that's why it's called development. Did you, uh, did you make that up or did you steal that from somebody? No, I that up. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it works. That's what development is. You know, most of the time it's just spent where it doesn't work and you got to fix it, you know, or that's failing somehow and you got to fix it. You're only going to succeed once. Well, I'm going to steal that from you, but I'll quote you if I ever see it. Yeah. You just got to get it to the point where it works once. And so all those failures don't matter because that's, that's just development. That's awesome. Well, I, I, we have to end on that because that's, that's okay. one of the best sayings I've heard in a long time. So thank you so much for your yeah. time. Um, you know, I'll leave all of the links to uh, okay. where to look at your channel down below. Um, and, you know, uh, thank you again for coming on. And I definitely hope to do this again. Yeah, it was fun. So I don't know, maybe again after, after the launch, maybe, or in February or whatever. Yeah, that would be awesome if you wouldn't mind. So uh, here's the teaser for the, the next Kevin interview, guys. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks again for your time. Mm-hmm.